Thank you very much. I'm Dave Mitchell again. Good to be with you, and we welcome you to Calvary. Uh, It's my opportunity to welcome you as well. And we're in a series called uh, Overcoming. It's uh, through a series in the book of Judges, and the Judges is probably one of the most traumatic kind of books to read. If you read the headlines of the events that are occurring in the Middle East today, you will see some of those same behaviors, some of those atrocious, horrible behaviors underway in the book of Judges as well. I wanted to begin by reading a great little passage out of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 speak to this whole idea of overcoming. It says there, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And so we want to be those who overcome the world, the values of the world, the atrocious things of the world. Let me just say by, uh, by way of uh, introduction as well, that our prayers go out to one who has overcome the world. One of the greatest victories of overcoming the world is through death. God brings pleasure to Himself through the death of His own children, He tells us in the Psalms. And this morning, one of our own, Carson Krebs, went to be with the Lord. And we would often see him up here in the choir regularly. And for whatever reason, God had his hand upon him in a way that uh, quietly ushered him into heaven this morning around 2 o'clock or so. And the family is with him. So keep them in prayer. There will be arrangements being made uh, this week for a service to remember him and what the Lord has done through his life. So we'll try to keep you informed of that. That's the ultimate ability to overcome. When we pass away, we overcome this world. If we're, as, Paul, as John says in verse 5, who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So if you haven't believed that Jesus is the Son of God, you've not yet overcome the world. But we want to help you not only overcome the world for death, but we want to help you overcome the world for today in life and the events that are occurring around us. And so this morning, the theme is overcoming an imperfect faith. I remember the very first time I have ever had to speak before any group of people anywhere. And they often say public speaking is one of the most fearsome things that people uh, would do. And uh, the very first time I was in uh, about a freshman or, or a, a sophomore in high school, before I could drive, And so we were taken to this juvenile hall, and I stood before a group of juvenile delinquents, as we would refer to them back then, and maybe sometimes we still want to today. And they sat there with their blue jeans and their white t-shirts. That was their uniform. And I had to get up and share my testimony about how I believed in Jesus Christ. And uh, I was as nervous as could be, and I was very distraught over this really small setting, and uh, this really simple, fairly simple speech that I had to make. But I was so distraught over that that when I went home to my dad, who was a pastor, and uh, so I grew up in a pastor's home, as many of you know, I shared with him, uh, and I really broke down and cried, and I told my dad, I never want to speak in front of a group of people for the rest of my life. I just don't want to ever have to do that. So I still have, even as I sit here, as Eric prayed and... You know, I still have these flash... As soon as he's saying, I was kind of thinking about that moment uh, way back then. And I still have these little panic attacks before I get up here. Uh, that, uh, God, I am an imperfect vessel. 
there will be people who are constantly judging every word, every tone, every this, every that. And God, it's a tough place to be. In fact, it's a little bit, Joe and I have been kind of enjoying the uh, Combine, which is where the NFL players go and they try out in Indianapolis right now. The NFL players are trying out the seniors and juniors who have graduated from college. And they're trying out to get into the pros. And it's amazing. All these little exercises they have the NFL players run through, defensive linemen, offensive linemen, and the quarterbacks and the receivers and so forth. And you hear these commentators in the background talking, oh, that footwork, oh, that uh, posture, oh, that attitude, that speed. They're constantly diagnosing and analyzing every single move these poor these are kids. These are kids as they play on the field. And the tense uh, moment of uh, evaluation. And you have that spotlight on your life. And you think, God, am I ever, ever, ever going to be good enough to amount to anything to be able to achieve things of significance in my life? And although not all of us have an audience that is constantly evaluating, we have a Lord who is. And sometimes we have a spouse who is. And sometimes we have a parent who is. And sometimes we have a child who is. And sometimes we have a dear friend who is constantly speaking into us. And finally, there comes a point in time where we feel like, I'm just not good enough. I just don't have what it takes. And those are difficult moments. So this morning, I'd like to address, for those, maybe just a few of you, maybe just a handful, maybe I and about three others here this morning, have these feelings. Um, but I'd like to address it in the sense that God helps us to overcome the imperfections of our lives. We're going to learn from a fellow whose name is Jephthah. And Jephthah is an unusual and bizarre guy that we would never hire to be on staff here at Calvary Church. But it's someone God mightily used. And it shows that God is so gracious. And next Sunday is even more amazing because we're going to be on Samson. Samson is a guy we would never think of having as an elder in our church. But God used him. And we, we hear the stories of Samson. You're going to get a new light on him as well. That God takes these unusual people who some ways spectacularly fail, but God helps them to overcome and now we have them in the hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11 where God says, man, look at Samson. Look at Jephthah. Jephthah in Hebrews 11. So we want to learn from these guys. Let me introduce him to you on the map. Jephthah lives in this area of the, what is called the Transjordan area of Israel as it was known in those days. The eastern side of the Jordan River. Um, today this area is known as the the country of Jordan. And uh, in those days, he was in the region, as you see, as Gilead. A little background. Gilead was the grandson of Manasseh. This is the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Gad that are kind of in this area. This is the region that we're looking at. And Jephthah lived in this area. And Jephthah was this imperfect man that God used in a perfect way to bring about victory in his life. We learn in how God helps us to overcome you have an outline that is in your bulletin. I encourage you to follow along in that outline and use that as a tool as well as the digging deeper that is in the backside. But let me show you how this story begins. This is what God does. God will discipline us to help us to grow to a more perfect faith because sometimes we don't do it naturally. Again, it just, it's just like our children. 
we never have to train our children to be rebellious. When they're two, they just naturally do it. When they're three, when they're 16, they naturally know how to rebel. They know how to say no. They know how to quarrel. They know how to complain. They know how to have that attitude. They know how to flick their hair when they're upset with us. They know how to have that eye look. They just naturally have this spirit of rebellion and obstinacy. It it just sort of comes out of them. We always have to work to get them to go the right way. It very naturally, we want to go the wrong way. And some of us who are big adults, we still have a natural inclination to do wrong rather than right. Doing wrong comes easy. Doing right is often harder. Well, in the nation of Israel, they constantly would go wrong. And here's where they went wrong. And God disciplines them for us. You drop down in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. This is an amazing situation and scenario. These are God's children, this powerful nation of Israel that we love even to this day. But it says in verse 6, And the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. See, they said again. This is that cyclical thing where they constantly cycle through sin, salvation, and redemption, and then sin again. What do they do? They serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. They served seven other gods, but they wouldn't serve God, Jehovah God. This is just an astounding thing that they had all these other false gods that are nothing but idols and poles and pieces of wood and pieces of rock. Dead things. They served dead things. And then God says, My anger burned against Israel, and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And Ammon, as you saw on the map, is that region that is today the country of Jordan. And they afflicted and crushed the the sons of Israel. That year, for 18 years, they afflicted the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan. That means east of the Jordan, Transjordanian area, in what is now referred to as Gilead or Manasseh and Gad, that area of those tribes in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah. So they crossed into the west, into Judah and Benjamin, the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our gods and served the Baals. So they recognized their wrongdoing because they were distressed, because they were afflicted, because they were crushed. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? The Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines. God says, I did all that for you. Also, when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me. You've served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. That haunts It should haunt our souls that God would ever come to us and see us in our sin and say, I will no longer deliver you. That's horrible. That's where God was. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Go to to that uh, Baal. Go to that Asherah pole. Go to the gods of Moab. Go to all the other gods. If, If you want them, go get them. Go 
ask them for help. And let them deliver you in your time of distress. And obviously rocks and poles don't deliver people out of distress. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And here is this, this amazing little phrase. And God could bear the misery of Israel no longer. That's the grace of God. He says, I am miserable when you are miserable. Remember when you used to discipline your children or maybe you still do it? This hurts me more than it hurts you. Did you spank them? Well, that's how God felt as God disciplined them. Some of the things that we learn from this little section is that God wants us to be more perfect than we are. So He will discipline us to a more perfect faith. Discipline is what is taking place here in verse 6, to turn from the Lord. If you turn from the Lord, God will discipline. Someone once said that God will never allow us to sin successfully. God will never allow us to sin successfully. For those of us who have forsaken the Lord, we've turned to the things of this world, the values of this world, the priorities of this world, the biblical morality of this world. When we turn to those value systems, we have turned to another God, a little G-God, just like they have turned to other gods in their frame of thought, mind. And God says, I'm not going to let you stay there. I'm going to let you feel the pain of that decision because you have turned there. God does not let His children sin successfully. He wants us to turn away. No matter what the world is saying, no matter what the values the world is. And how does He discipline us? He brings these things to afflict and crush us. I put on the back, on the digging deeper, this word crush is an amazing little word that is used in a variety of settings. So what does it mean that God would crush His children? It doesn't mean He steps on us like we're a cockroach. It means that He does and allows certain things to happen in our lives. That we would reach a point where we say, God, I no longer want to do those things. On the back side of the outline, I just chased this word crush around, and I'm not going to go into detail, but simply to draw your attention to it, that to be crushed is to struggle in our relationships. That was one definition of being crushed. Crushed is sometimes a financial loss. Crushed can be physical pain. Crushed can mean oppression and deprivation by others. Or crush can mean a feeling of distressment, where I am distressed. There's something that happens that God somehow permits or divinely causes when His children are forsaking Him, that He allows this, quote-unquote, crushing of those kinds of things that would then say, you know, this isn't working out so well. I think I need to have a plan B. And the plan B is to say, God, you are right all along. I need to come back to you. And so he will design this discipline so that he will restore and heal us. That's all he wants to do. He's, he's, not, a, he's not a sadist. He's, he's not trying to create pain because he's, an, he's just an angry ogre in heaven who loves to extract pain. Because you notice in verse 16, he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. He says, I don't like that you're in misery because when you're in misery, I'm in misery. 
I don't like it. You don't like it. Let's get this thing turned around. And they do turn around. Here is the definition of repentance as you see what is happening here. He says, the sons of Israel said in verse 15, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. So this is an acknowledgement that I have done wrong. And then verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them. They turn back and serve the Lord. Repentance is acknowledge the wrong, turn back and do the right. That's repentance. It's a 180 degree change of behavior. I don't continue the behavior I know it's wrong and say I'm sorry, stop the pain, and then continue that behavior that's wrong. No, that's not repentance. That's just I'm sorry I got caught and I'm sorry you're disciplining me. God says, I will then restore you when you confess your wrong, turn away from your wrong, and then serve me. So that's what God wants. And it's a fascinating thing that happens in the midst of this. I try to highlight. In verse 13, this is sort of a, a bigger issue than we want to have time to go into, but I just want to touch on it. Here's something that God happens, in, and, and all of us probably have somewhere in our family people who we have been praying for for years and they simply won't turn back to the Lord. And we don't understand that because God is such a good and gracious God. And we should have a relationship with the Lord because someday we're going to die. And at that point, it would sure be nice to know that they're going to heaven. Who doesn't want to go to heaven? Who doesn't want to have the assurance of going to heaven? And better yet, to have a little bit of heaven on earth so that we have the power of God to help us to deal with life. God's instructions to guide us in life. That life gets better when we're walking with the Lord. Who doesn't want that? And yet we all have family members or friends that we know that simply reject that. Well, here's one thing that God says to the Israelites. I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you. Let you wallow in your own deceptive ways. This is similar to a very troubling passage in Romans. In Romans 1, it says that a certain behavior, God says, I will give you over to that. In that particular passage, it happens to be homosexuality. He says, I will give you over to that and let that be your God. Let that be your life. I remove myself from you and give you over to that. That's what he's saying to them here. I'm going to give you over to those gods. I want you to see what that's really like. I'm going to step back a bit. And I'm just going to let you sort of wallow in your own pain, your own misery. I just want you to see what that feels like a little bit longer. And God is a very patient God. He doesn't rush in quickly. And all of us have friends and family members who say, God, I wish you'd already hurry up and done it. But he says, now I'm going to just let them feel a little bit longer because they're just, they're just not getting it. And so sometimes God does do that to his children until they can come to their senses and say, this isn't working out. And sometimes God brings strategic events into people's lives that makes them fully aware that the course of my life is simply not going well. And I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, as the saying goes. I'm being afflicted. I'm being crushed. I'm being distressed. I have financial loss. Relationships aren't working out well. All those things that he says that he does. He allows those things to continue. 
to get our attention so that we finally say, you know, Lord, I've tried to be the God of my own life, and I'm not a very good God. So now I want to turn from that, acknowledge it as wrong and sinful, and turn from it and my behavior in it and turn back to you and repent of that. That's what God wants from us. So he disciplines to allow that to happen because he recognizes that we are imperfect people with imperfect faith. So he brings about a more perfect life through discipline. So that's the first thing we learn about him. And then he uses people with imperfect pasts. Now we introduce ourselves to Jephthah. He is the new judge. In verse chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite. Again, Gileadite, that region, the Transjordan on the east side of the Jordan River. Today it's called Jordan. He was a valiant warrior. So this guy's a fighter. This guy's strong. He's a leader. He knows his stuff. But he was the son of a harlot. But he was the son of a harlot. But his mommy was a prostitute. Well, that's not exactly a glowing report on the resume for judgeship. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Now Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And of course, worthless fellows gathered around him, and they went out with him. This is a sad story. But what I love about this is what it tells me is that God does not hold us back because our past is broken. There are so many great stories where God takes people with imperfect past. Moms, a harlot, a prostitute. Brothers, they've rejected me. I can't be with them. I am cast out of their family. I have no inheritance. I am on my own. I am, it's up to me and a bunch of worthless people I hang out with to somehow survive. They didn't have all kinds of, you know, food stamps and welfare checks and things like that. You, you're kicked out of the family. You're kicked out of the inheritance. You are literally on your own. And you just go out there and you scrape together as best you can to somehow survive life. Well, that's Jephthah. And what I learned from Jephthah is that God loves to use people with imperfect pasts. If you've got a brokenness with your family, if you've got a, a heritage that you hope that people don't learn about, you've got parents that have done horrible things and you just pray that nobody ever reveals that to others, or maybe there are things that you have done in your own background and you are embarrassed and you feel shame over those things. God says, I understand. I use people like you. If you have an allegiance to me as the God of the earth, the heavens and the earth, if you have a trust in my son Jesus Christ, I help you overcome all that garbage that brings shame to you, either by virtue of your family or your own personal history. I'd love to bring you in and use you in a mighty way. Because I use Jephthah. And Jephthah, with all that garbage in his past, he's in my hall of faith. 
He's a guy that I have everybody read in Hebrews 11. says, look at him. I used him in a mighty way. That's the positive message that comes out of this guy's life. Just incredible. And he would love to do it with those of us in this room. So therefore, I don't want to let my imperfections in my past hold us back. Please don't do that. I can't believe how many times I encounter folks, and believe me, there are some of you that have stories to be told. Tremendous stories of redemption and grace and forgiveness and healing and restoration. Many of you have those stories. So I'm pleading with you. Let God use you. Let that redemptive work of God in your life be an opportunity to communicate that God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and that He is a redemptive God of grace that restores and heals and helps me overcome. I'm asking you to come forward at some point in time and say, I am embarrassed for my past, but I want to applaud the grace of God. And there is a great moment coming up where I want to use my past for the glory of God. And I'm willing for people to hear it. Because God uses those stories. That's, what's, that's why God tells us about Jephthah. It's not a pretty past that he has. And you'll see even something uglier than this. But God uses him. God uses the stories of that. So we overcome them. God overcomes imperfect relationships to accomplish His plans. So He's got this terrible thing with His family and all the people there. And it says in verse 4, It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. So now they're in fighting again. There's battles going on. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob, where they had just kicked him out and shinned him on his way. And told him, you're worthless, we don't want you around here, but now we're in trouble. So they said, come and be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Can you imagine how Jephthah's brothers now feel? When the leaders of Ammon are going over and says, Jephthah, we now need you, come on back. And the other brother, wait a second, we hate this guy. We just kicked him out of our family. And now you're bringing him back? You've got to be kidding me. Well, Jephthah said to the elders in verse 7, did you hate me? Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? So I know he's got a little chip on his shoulder, and who wouldn't? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, so that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord will gives them up to me, will I become your head? So he's bargaining a deal. He says, I want a contract. I want an arrangement. I want to be in charge. I don't want to be kicked out again. And so I get that. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. So then Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. You know, one thing that you don't read here, and I don't know that Jephthah did anything about it. It reminds me of Joseph when Joseph came back to his brothers. Can you imagine the temptation that Jephthah had when he went to visit his brothers who had kicked him out of the house and lost his inheritance? And he says to his brothers, I am now your boss. I rule over you. 
I have full authority over you. Can you imagine the temptation that would be in a carnal heart like mine to say, I'm going to extract my pound of flesh from you for what you did to me? He had power to do that. But you don't read that anywhere. That's big, temp- big time temptation. When he's got that kind of authority and power in that land where there's a ruthless character to it as you even see it to this day and there was a day that it was like that back then as well where death was nothing to you know it was just nothing to them and people would die people would be massacred last week we saw from uh, Abimelech that he burned up a thousand people in a tower thought nothing of it nothing of it and that's who Jephthah is God helps us overcome imperfect relationships he comes back I don't understand all the dynamics of it. They probably did not have group therapy in those days. There was no psychologist that says, Jephthah, let's meet together with your brothers and tell us how you feel. They probably didn't do that. There was no sort of a behavior science that was going on. It was pretty cut and dried in those days. You're in charge. Lead the battle. Defeat the enemy. So God does help relationships heal imperfect as they are or remained nevertheless so what is needed to overcome this uh, imperfect people let me show you some of the positive things that Jephthah demonstrates for us and then one of the big big problems that comes out of this passage first of all you trust in the power of God and I hope I don't need to say a lot about that, but I love about Jephthah's heart. You notice that in verses 9, 10, and 29. It says there, And the Lord gives them up to me. He was trusting that God would give them up. In verse 10, the elders of Gilead said, The Lord is witness between us. So the Lord is involved in that. And then down in verse 29, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mitzvah and Gilead and the Mitzvah of Gilead, and he went on to the sons of Ammon. And uh, then he had victory. You've got to believe that the power of God makes these things happen. If you don't believe that the power of God will help you repent, the power of God will help you heal, the power of God will help you overcome imperfections, if you don't believe the power of God can help you restore relationships, then you are one who needs a lot of prayer. But when you believe the power of God has the capacity to make these things happen, to bring back relationships, to bring back over imperfections, God is a God who does that. He loves to do that. But secondly, I need to be able to know God's truth and defend it. One of the things that happens here is an amazing thing. Here in verse uh, 14, he goes to the king of Ammon. Ammon is battling them, wants to battle them. But verse 14, it says, But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. And then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east to the side of the land of Moab and they camped beyond the Arnon and they did not enter the territory of Moab for Arnon was uh, the border of Moab and Israel sent messengers to Sion, the king of the Amorites, the king of Heshman. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through the land of our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all the people and camped at Jez. 
has and fought with Israel. And the Lord God of Israel gave Sion and all of his people in the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Let me, uh, that's like, uh, wow, what in the world? What are you saying there? What, what's that? How, how does that help me restore my marriage? Here's, here's the map. And then let me make a point. Here's what's happening. Jephthah is a valiant warrior. His instinct is to battle. He's a fighter. A fighter first. But when he's made head of the Gileadites, what does he do? He begins to negotiate with the king of Ammon. He talks to him. He sends his people over there. And they have this conference. And they talk. We don't want to do battle with you. What's your complaint with us, he says to King Ammon. King Ammon says, well, you have taken my land and you don't deserve to have my land. So I want my land back. And so then they negotiate. And what Jephthah does, he says, let me tell you the story of what God has done in this world. And the land that he's talking about here, if you see on the map there, you can see down the bottom is Edom. The Edomites came out of a man by the name of Esau, the red-haired guy. Above him is Moab, and above them is Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites. Moab and Ammon. Ammonites, Moabites. They are the offspring of Lot's incestuous relationship with his two daughters. Lot had sex with one daughter. God had, Lot had sex with his other daughter. And the children of those two daughters, one was the Moabites named Moab, the other the Ammonites named Ammon. So the Moabites and the Ammonites are actually, in a DNA sort of way, related to the Jewish people, as are the Edomites that are on the very bottom there. And what Jephthah is saying is they traveled around on the eastern side, on that side of the map, and they circled up to where Ammon is and began to enter into the land that we now today call Israel. He says, that's what God did. Now here's, and I don't have time to go into the the detail of it all, but let me just say this. Jephthah was dependent on negotiating peace by how well he knew biblical truth and history. That's the bottom line. I don't want to get lost in the weeds of territories and stuff because I don't have time to go in it. But simply say this. If you want God to help you to overcome the imperfections of life, do what Jephthah did. Jephthah, this guy, he knew God's Word. He knew God's history. He knew God's unpacking of all that he's done. He knew God's will because he knew God's Word because he followed God's history. If you want to be an overcomer over imperfections, Become a student of God's Word, the knowledge of what God said, the understanding of what God has done. And when I know what God has done, then I take those timeless principles and I help myself by knowing how God wants to work today. That's the bottom line. That's what he did. God's power, God's truth. You align those things and man, you're empowered to do anything that God ever calls you to do. And don't let any imperfection of your past, your relationships, hold you back. God loves to do that. He did it with Jephthah, this 'er ne'er-do-well guy, 
with worthless characters all around him, with a terrible history of his past, he can do with anybody in this room. He would love to do that today. And then finally, avoid these problems. This is a very problematic section of God's Word. Probably one of the most difficult passages in the Scriptures. Notice what happens here. This, this problem of Jephthah's heart. In verse 30 it says this, of chapter 11. Then Jephthah, he's going to go to battle with king of Ammon. But he wants God on his side. He wants God on his side. He, he makes this terrible arrangement with God. In verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and he said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand as I go to battle with them because I want to have victory, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace after the battle is over from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Well, you know what happened? He went out and he had victory. He came home. And the first thing that walked out of the door was his daughter. His daughter. And he knew that he took a vow. He says, God, I told you. First thing out of that doorway, I sacrifice it to you as a burnt offering. Verse 34, When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, Behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with the tambourines and with dancing. She was his one and only child. Besides, he had, her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. And she said to him, Father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relationship with the man. And thus it became a custom in Israel. And the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah. This is awful, isn't it? He makes this vow. He holds himself to the vow. So does his daughter. And he has this faulty view of God's grace. And here's what we want to avoid. He trusts in God's power. He knows God's truth. But then he makes this awful arrangement and negotiation with God. I want victory to guarantee victory. I'm willing to sacrifice the loss of my own kid, my own daughter, my one and only daughter. And it's this dangerous tool we try to manipulate the heart of God. That God, if I do X, will you do Y for me? We sort of have this legalistic mindset that I need to earn God's favor. I need to do something for God to be pleased with me in my imperfections. I need to do something for God's grace to help me to overcome this. I need God's will. So I want to arrange my life where I do a bunch of good stuff, sacrificial stuff, hard stuff, painful things, so that I'll get God on my side. And I begin to manipulate the heart of God. And God says, I don't need that. 
I don't need that. I am miserable when you're miserable. I want you to have victory. Jephthah, please don't make arrangements with me that manipulates my heart that if I do good, you have to help me. I'll help you whether you do good or whether you do bad. I'll help you. It may be discipline. It may be delightful. But I'll help you. You don't have to play tricks with me. So it's a faulty view of God's grace. He also had a, uh, really a faulty assimilation of the world's values. In Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 18, God clearly said, you do not sacrifice your children like the surrounding nations. You do not offer your children as a burnt sacrifice. That was the custom in those days. The surrounding little g-gods required them to give babies to God on a burnt offering. It's just horrible. Well, what happened to Jephthah? He swallowed up in the assimilation of those kind of values. Don't let the words, world's values begin to manipulate how we live. And then finally, he had a faulty view of God's Word. Why is that? Because in Leviticus 27, God has an arrangement made. If you make a sacrifice to me, and you don't want to make that sacrifice, he says in Leviticus 27, well, here's the price tag for this sacrifice. Here's the price tag for that sacrifice. You can buy it out. So he had little numbers. You can see that for you know gender and, and age and things like that. Here's what it would cost you to get rid of that. He could have offered to God a number of shekels that would have redeemed his own daughter. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. And so we see within Jephthah, this is, this is why I thought, this is, a, this is a perfect, imperfect man who believes in the Word of God, who believes in the power of God, but has this moment of imperfection that is offensive to all of us in this room. That you would do that to your one and only daughter, even if you had a hundred daughters, you shouldn't do it to one. How do you do that? And so what God wants us to understand is that there are times when we are imperfect people, we have imperfect faith, and we make terrible decisions, and we take responsibility for something that is awful, and yet God still works. It doesn't mean He gives us license to do it, but it does mean that in that imperfection, God says, I still want to redeem you. I want to buy you back. He could have bought back his daughter. He didn't. But God says, I'll buy you back with my son. I paid the price so that you don't need to sacrifice yourself at the altar of God to somehow earn God's way to heaven. Some people want to earn their way to heaven by doing good. You can't do that. Some people want to earn God's favor to help heal a marriage, restore finances, get a better job. And God, I'll do all these things. I'll even fill out the registration card on Sundays if you just help me get that job. And we, we have these little fantasies of these things that we think that we should do. I'll go to church regularly if you just help me get this job or help me overcome this disease. God says, I don't play that game. Don't play that game with me. I'm a God of grace and truth. And if you yield yourself to me and imperfections at all, I will heal. I will restore. I will help you overcome. Just walk with me. As I walk with Jephthah, imperfections at all, I want to walk with you. 
So whatever it is you're holding on to and whatever those imperfections and painful things of your past, of relationships, of terrible decisions, horrible mistakes, chaotic matters of life, God says, just just give it to me and let me heal your life. So I invite you to do that. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that you would guide us now because you are a patient God and we are an imperfect people. Father, I know that I still make mistakes. Here I am, 63 years old, and I still make stupid mistakes. God, I just, it's just unbelievable. Because there is such a natural inclination for us to go that way. God, help us. As I, as I just think about Jephthah's life and the imperfections of what he did and the vow that he made and how awful that is to read that. Yet, God, there he is in Hebrews 11. Someone that we look to as a man of deep faith. I, I, I don't know if I could have put him there, but, Lord, you did. So, Lord, that gives us hope in this room. There are many of us in this room who have made imperfect decisions, have imperfect pasts, imperfect relationships, just imperfections that seem to paint a color of life. God, I pray that we would yield that to you and that we would see you as a God who gets miserable when we're miserable and wants to heal us of what is broken in us and restore us through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, by trusting in Him today. Father, thank you for that. We bring our offerings to you. Offering, I pray, that comes out of a clean and pure heart that simply says, I want to love you. I want to celebrate you. I want to worship you. So I offer my life, but I offer all that you own. Out of that, I give to you now. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.